So today is not the best day for global politics because the UK got pushed into the into their own election yesterday with the, now the Tories control politics for the next essentially decade, especially with Boris Johnson. Because did you watch that? Yes, I watched a bit of the returns coming in and their overwhelming victory over the Labour Party. Yeah, I was. I mean, I wasn't totally surprised just because the whole. I don't. I get it with the whole Jeremy Corbyn thing. How people are very angry. I'm unsurprised about some of the anger over it, though. But yeah. especially everything happening there today. It was the Judiciary Committee voted on the two articles of impeachment sure. along party lines. You were you watching that as well? I have been watching it fairly closely. <laughs> yeah. So especially because what we're going to talk about in in this episode too. Sure. Um. But so my name is AC and Carter for short, and this is a a precursor, I guess you could call it, to delved in. So I'm here with Lindsay Boylan. Uh, please introdu- introduce yourself. Sure. I'm Lindsay Boylan. I'm running for Congress in uh, the 10th Congressional District. I'm a Democrat, a lifelong public servant, a mom of a five-year-old, uh, and I'm excited to be here. So going back, when did you when did you file for? for I trial? filed in April of this year. Okay. Yeah. So what made you specifically want to get into this? Well, you know, I've I've been in public service, as I mentioned earlier, m- pretty much my whole career from urban planning to municipal finance to working for the state of New York. Uh, and most recently, I was uh, Deputy Secretary for Economic Development, overseeing all the state's economic development, as well as housing portfolios and recovery work for um, uh, Hurricane Sandy and, and beyond. Mm-hmm. And what I realized was, whether we're talking about housing issues or we're talking about climate change or we're talking about any of the biggest problems of inequality that we have um, and this being the most unequal district in Mm -hmm. the country we can't solve them alone at the city or the state level we need a federal government that works and we need a federal government and a congress that uh, advocates for the things that are most important to grapple with extreme inequality and climate change And we don't have that in this district, Uh, a very safe Democratic district that is going to elect a Democrat. uh, We should give people the right to a choice and give them options um, for the kind of leadership and the kind of focus they want. And I saw that being particularly um, possible in the midterms because all of these new candidates particularly you know next generation candidates got out and started winning across the country when they were talking about issues of inequality and climate change issues that really resonate with with people in their districts and so between seeing the problems that we had um, our inability to solve them even um, to the extent that I saw it in my own in my own field at the city and state level of government that we really need better representation at the federal level and that's why I decided to jump in I was very surprised because what really changed everything was 2018, especially yeah. with because yes. there was the whole race with Crowley and and, and Alexander Ocasio Cortez, and that was a very big shift because yeah. that kind of represented like it was like a a threshold that was able to be beaten through. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you oh, see, I mean, you even saw it in other races. I would say oh, Anna Presley's. I mean, yeah. she ran against a former mayor, um, very popular mm-hmm. by all accounts, fairly liberal. Um, but not really pushing the issues and addressing them mm-hmm. that were concerns for the community. And she ended up beating um, beating the, the, the long-serving incumbent in his own, his own hometown. Mm-hmm. So, and then you have people like Ro Khanna, who've been doing it for a few mm-hmm. terms now. Um, and, you know, I think even in cases where you didn't have an, a challenger taking on an uh, incumbent from our own party, a lot of the races really had a different kind of leader running in them, mm. like Lucy McBath in um, Georgia. Um, mm. I think she was a different kind of, she is a different kind of politician because she's talking about uh, gun control, having been a mom of a, of, of a son who died. Yeah. yeah, and I think, I think you're seeing more of that. Mm. I think social media plays certainly a role in that. Um, and I think there's a sense not only are we extremely unhappy with leadership at the top mm. um, with this president, with this GOP that controls the Senate at least um, and is appointing people to the Supreme Court, mm. um, but we're unhappy with the the pace of change within our own party. Mm. Um, the Democratic leadership isn't reflective of 
you know, isn't addressing the issues that I'm hearing about in the district every day. And I think those are the kinds of the people who are responding to the concerns of real people in their districts rather than toting a party line on how to approach those problems are the ones who've won. And that's what we're doing here. Well, especially because you're running against Gerald Nyler, who's a very prominent House member. Sure. Especially. So I did want to mention because you mentioned you had an article or you had an interview with Team Vogue back mm -hmm. in February. And I w when I was looking at your campaign and everything, this really, like, not, I mean, it didn't totally shock because I know it obviously happened to some candidates, but there was a governmental acquaintance you had yeah. that sent you an email because mm -hmm. you were thinking about running in the race. And it said, quote, I was disappointed to read that you floated your name as a primary opponent, Jerry Nadler. It is a shame that you did not listen to me. Of course, I am totally behind Nadler. If you run, I seriously doubt that you will reach the 11% level the last opponent did. And unfortunately, you may have seriously impaired any realistic chance to run for the other offices you were considering. So I'm reading that and going, that's awful. But at the same time, I know that behind closed doors, like that's how exactly it would, oh, yeah. it would try to speak. So I know that because I technically know what happened because you are running. Yeah. Um, but what was going through your mind at that time? You know, it doesn't really matter who he is as an individual. The person mm -hmm. said this to me, but to add context of the kind of person that tries to threaten you and make yeah. you feel like you can't do this, this is someone who is a large donor to the Democratic Party, mm -hmm. gives to the DCCC, gives to quote-unquote women's initiatives in mm -hmm. the DCCC. Um, and he wrote that email from his uh, very quote-unquote progressive law mm -hmm. firm in the city of New York. Um, and he's known to be someone who rotates in, you know, figures who are interested in, in getting engaged in politics in the city. Mm -hmm. And I just think that underscores how backward our entire system is um, within the Democratic Party that individuals can hold such sway and feel like they hold such sway over all the decisions that are made. Um, and I didn't, you know, I didn't. I wasn't looking for him to respond. Mm -hmm. I was, I, I wouldn't even say I was offended. I thought it was just a great illustration of the kind of stuff, as you just said, that happens all the time. And um, I was angry, but not for myself. I was angry because if someone like that would try and threaten me, and I've had all these great opportunities in my career um, and in my life, um, and I have a bully pulpit to use, think about what happens to um, other women who have not had the opportunities that I have had, other people who have not been given um, the spotlight or the moment and don't have the same safety net to make choices like this, it enraged me in that perspective. So not really so much for myself, but for all of the people who end up being caught up in systems that threaten them, that um, just perpetuate incumbency and frankly perpetuate very... Um, power structures that look like they've looked for hundreds of years. Um, so I was angry and it made me even more excited to run because it's part of what I'm trying to, to end. We really shouldn't have people threatening um, anyone out of a race. This district yeah. deserves to choose who their leadership should be. They deserve a genuine race um, and they deserve uh, an exchange of ideas so that they can make a choice on who's what kind of leader and what kind of leadership they want. And um, what this man was doing was, as a surrogate of the congressman, threatening me. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, it doesn't work with me. It just made me that much more inspired to run. Well, I was going to say, because it, it was threatening, but it's kind of funny how like the opposite effect happened. Oh, it's, yeah. It's kind of like, what did you expect was going to happen? You're just going to be, you know what, man, I'm just not going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's what he expected, yeah. um, because that's sort of. Uh, frankly, the the experience he's been that experience has been reinforced throughout his career. Um, that's a tremendous amount of um, privilege mm -hmm. to be in a seat like that. Um, a man who sits in a seat like that can use his professional email to wheel and deal and threaten in politics, mm -hmm. um, particularly from a law firm that prides itself on diversity. Um, and he feels no, um, you know, uh, pause whatsoever in doing that is is a symptom of the problem that we have in our politics. I think too, because going back a little bit, so when I was interviewing other professors into this topic of, there was an unrelated project, but at the same point was essentially this too. Yeah. So they were saying that, we were having a discussion about the 
the progressive establishment battles in the last few years yes in in new york city there's been a battle in each one there was um there was queens with yep. which uh alexander Kizio cortez Jumani williams in brooklyn yep and then with um with bowman in bronx yep i i said what do you think of manhattan because manhattan hasn't really had like a progressive battle yet it's mostly been and i remember the professor said he said that it it's not really that kind of area that can have that. like they can have people who are very progressive liberal meaning mm-hmm. in that sense but it's not going to go that further because as he quoted is is it like a disneyland because manhattan he said manhattanites are more um in that way they're set in their way other mm-hmm. places are more like um they have their they have their ideals and then manhattan is more like a upper privileged people sure but he said like we're it's probably if, if there is going to be one it's going to be a while but it looks like there's one right now <laughs> yeah 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 well and i think it's sort of what manhattan are we talking about mm-hmm. um you know this is the most unequal district in the country yeah. so that doesn't mean we just have wealthy people mm-hmm. um you know we have somewhere between 12 and 15 percent of our people are on food stamps in this district uh, we have thousands of people living in substandard conditions in NYCHA mm-hmm. um, in this district, um, some of which are being sort of highlighted and discussed in terms of how to manage um, long-term projects and the future of those projects, like Fulton Houses, mm-hmm. just a few blocks from my house. Mm-hmm. Um, the district does extend into Brooklyn, um, mm-hmm. predominantly Borough Park, Kensington, and parts of Sunset Park. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe what the professor means also, because I, I see where that's coming from, is that, you know, you have a lot of shifting demographics in some of some other parts of the city, but you have that here as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the last, um, you know, between the last census uh, and now, we've had um, a really increasing number of well-educated women um, from a younger age range, you know, women between college age years and late 40s and 50s make up the majority of this district. But you wouldn't know that based off of our representation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, women are the primary voters in this district, increasingly well-educated women, um, people who um, are maybe are making choices to stay in the district with their family if they, if they can. Um, staying with your family in this district presents a lot of challenges with cost of living. Um, people are feeling that. They're mm-hmm. communicating that in their community boards. Um, the district has gotten a, a, a fair amount more diverse than it had been. It's now almost uh, 20% Asian American. Um, that's not a monolithic community, but this is all a way to say that the district's changing pretty significantly since the, it has changed and it's continuing to since the congressman came into office almost 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. If you think about even just the the way that the, the landscape has changed. We have Hudson Yards, which is one of the most Ugh. sort of high, hotly debated um, projects in the city and in the country. Uh, we have Chelsea that is, on, you know, expanding tremendously. Yeah. It's, you know, the, the per square foot, the costs have gone up e- extremely high to live there. Um, you have lower Manhattan, um, you know, for, for reasons having to do with rebuilding after 9-11. But beyond that, um, the population has doubled since the, the congressman has has been in office Mm -hmm. and that is also the most well-educated area of the city Um, you have a tremendous amount of diversity in this district and um, you also have Columbia University and NYU and you have the Manhattan Borough Community College and you have a lot of young people who want to say in their government as well and I think there's a lot of change there Um, so I think it's less monolithic than people would imagine so the other thing is too is that with with Geraldine Adler there's a lot of people who say he's not that establishment kind of thing. He's right. more curious than you think. Yeah. Um, but because sure. I talk to other people, they say, well, look at what he's done with the impeachment proceedings is that he's been shown is he's very uh, he's very um, strict in his, his ways. He's very he's progressive in that sense that he's trying mm-hmm. to get through. Um, people say, well, he, he's doing he's doing good in that sense. Sure. That he's pushing through the impeachment with a good that. I guess a democratic sense in that way, not just mm-hmm. the party, but in terms of like our democracy. So, what do you say to people that say he's what way is that? he's pretty progressive? Well, the only reason he got that chairmanship um, and the reason why you get leadership positions in the party is because you do what you're told. Mm. 
that doesn't come for being particularly innovative or progressive with your ideas. It actually comes from getting in line. And um, if we look at the history of how he's responded to impeachment, it's also reflected in that. Um, he didn't, he's waffled back and forth in terms of talking about impeaching the president. He tried to have, um, you know, a second hearing where Bob Mueller did the hard work for him, but of course that didn't work out so well and it was, um, you know, not well received, even though the second volume of the Mueller report very clearly states what we're impeaching the president for now, which is abuse of power, um, you know, it's uh, obstruction of justice. Um, the Ukraine example is just a small, one, one finite example, not small, of all of the things that were already in the public purview. Mm -hmm. And it took the congressman a really long time to get there, and he only got there because he was told it was okay by the speaker. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't call that leadership. Mm -hmm. um, I would call that following the leader. Um, and in terms of his broader record, um, I would agree that he votes, you know, along party lines and, and it's fairly a fairly liberal record. Mm. Um, but in my view, and I think what you're seeing with all this explosion of, of new candidates is it's not simply enough to vote the right way when when it doesn't have any meaningful impact on change. He's he's literally only passed three pieces of his own legislation into law over almost 30 years. <laughs> yeah. Two of those pieces of legislation are ceremonial. Mm. One of those ceremonial pieces of legislation is a bill um, that enacted into law, named a building after the guy who died in office so he could get the seat through county committee, not through popular election. So for the first time, mm. um, you know, he's been a lifelong politician in this district. Um, I understand with that comes, you know, uh, um, the sense that he is infallible and extremely powerful. Um, but at what point do we start to question if this is the most unequal district in the country? Um, if we have all of these challenges, if climate, climate related disasters like Hurricane Sandy hmm. are impacting this district front and center. Which you yourself was involved absolutely involved in absolutely you know and and i to your point i oversaw the office of uh, storm recovery when mm -hmm. i worked for the state seven years on after hurricane sandy we're still dealing with the impact of that disaster i also oversaw the state's recovery work in puerto rico um we are nowhere near as prepared as we should be to deal with climate change and this district with miles of coastline is front and center for the issues that we're already dealing with and we have people in office, we have a congressman in this district that hasn't used his extreme credibility to make the changes we need. Mm. Um, you know, it's, 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 in my view, fairly easy to go along with and vote in favor of legislation that other people have created and put themselves out there on the line for. It's, um, it's quite another to be a leader in, in making change that we need to see. It's why we've had all of these conversations around the Green New Deal. It's why we have all the excitement around these new leaders who are talking about really progressive changes that would respond to extreme inequality and climate change. Um, and I think he's a great example of why the same old stuff isn't going to work for the future. Uh, we're not gonna be dealing with real problems if we continue to perpetuate the same cycle of people who um, reach leadership by doing what they're told, um, safely staying in line and um, presenting themselves as progressive when it's convenient and not too difficult for them to do so. Well, there must be excitement though, because uh, with your campaign that is, yeah. because fundraising has gone spectacular because you've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars from people that there has to be some kind of sentiment that yeah. something's resonating. Yeah, I think there's a lot. I mean, I am, um, you know, there is an excitement around this moment in time. As challenging as a moment in time we're in, whether we're talking about the US, we're talking about global politics, people feel that and 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 I agree the moment where we have the most the most challenges is the moment where the most creativity comes out. And I think in particular it's the moment where a lot of women get up and say, historically, I'm gonna take responsibility. I'm gonna step out here and do something about this problem in my community. Uh, we've seen women do that um, since the beginning of the country, since in every society women do that. Um, the, this district hasn't been represented by a woman in 50 years, as progressive as it is. Bella Abzug was the last woman to represent the district and only the second in history for the, the geographic representation of this district. 
Um, I, excuse me, I would be the second woman in history after Bella. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a tremendous amount of excitement around having a candidate who's ready to do that job and who knows how to respond to the problems of the day in an innovative way, who spent a career in urban planning and management and um, related to the dealing with the impacts of climate change. Um, I also think our messaging and our, our deep thinking around mental health and mental illness is, is a real draw for people. Um, people want to see new leaders who are going to actually try and deal with the problems we have. The frustration that you see on Twitter, that you see at rallies, isn't just with Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. It's with a whole system that hasn't actually made the changes that would improve people's lives. And um, I think that's the excitement that's coming from the campaign. I'm very excited that you know a lot of the significant donors are women. Um, I like to talk about that as much as I can because I think it's a lesser discussed part of politics. Uh, women have always been behind political campaigns, volunteering. We've, we are predominantly in this district, especially the primary um, voters uh, who, who decide in the elections and their funding campaigns. And of course, now we have several women running for president. Um, I think we would be a much um, better nation if we had more diversity in our leadership and that includes women it includes moms um, I think there's a lot of excitement from other moms I have a campaign manager who's also a mom <laughs> from the Upper West Side in the district our communications head is a mom from the Upper West Side in the district and um, I think all of these things make people feel that um, someone who has experience with the real problems in their lives is going to do something about them when she gets into office and that's I think what the excitement is all about this district people haven't been given the choice to vote for anyone really for uh, the better part of three decades um, besides the congressmen. And what has that led to? You know, 30,000 people decide um, the fate of the election each every two years for, you know, uh, three quarters of a million people. Um, In and a sense, it's almost like entitlement. Yeah, and I don't think that's how politics should work. Um, that's That's been, you know, since I was a little girl, what what I thought was important to change. It doesn't matter if we're talking about politics or we're talking about business or we're talking about a community. If you have a group of people making all the choices who perpetuate and honor the next person to make those choices, you're probably going to have a system that um, the decisions made don't reflect the greater good. Mm. And that's part of what we're doing here. And um, I think that's what you're seeing across the country. And that's part of why... Um, liberal, or excuse me, progressive activists really got the, the state legislator act on even voter reform legislation last legislative cycle once once um, the state went blue uh, with the Senate. Um, you know, people want more transparency. They want more governmental accountability and they want more opportunities to weigh in on the decisions that are made at government. I think my run for Congress and so many others is just a reflection of that. And I think there maybe is some particular excitement because I've had, I've spent a lot, most of my career um, trying to solve problems related to what I'm gonna do and respond to when I get into Congress. And I think that's what people are looking for because we, we got a lot of really serious problems we have to deal with. So segueing that into the main focus, so with social media and digital media, mm-hmm. how exactly has it tied to your campaign? So, you know, it's been highly useful. Um, part of, you know, when I, the, I got a lot of positive feedback when I decided to run. Mm-hmm. And then from some folks, I got the two kinds of negative comments I got were, um, Jerry Nadler is going to save us, mm-hmm. air quotes, obviously, because, you yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> that's not happened. It's not going to happen. You know, I was taught from a young age by my mom that no mm-hmm. one's coming to save me. Yeah. Um, we have to save ourselves together. Um, and that I wasn't going to be able to break through and get any coverage and get any awareness of even my campaign and, you know, visibility. Um, you know, we've been covered, to your point, in Teen Vogue. We've been yeah. covered in the New York Times, the Washington Post. I've been covered on everything from CNN to Fox News. You know, we've been in Business Insider. Every major Washington Post, mm-hmm. every major publication um, has talked about what we're doing, what we're about, what we're trying to change. And so that right there has already, you know, surpassed the expectations and the threshold of what people said we couldn't do. I, I mention all that because social media has pay- played a really big role in us being able to level the playing field to get that message out there. You know, we what you want to do when you're, um, you know, when you're talking about a mental health agenda. Um, I did an op-ed in BuzzFeed. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it, it can have the traction if people read online, but it really gets out there and connects you to people who care about these issues through Twitter, right? Um, all of the major journalists, pundits, political you know, followers are on Twitter. So as complicated a relationship as I have to Twitter because it's <laughs> too much a part of my life, um, it, it, if when used correctly, um, can really help uh, level the playing field. Uh, and that's why I was um, very concerned and then very excited yesterday to learn that they're going to start um, providing the blue check for primary um, challengers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because that's a big deal. Mm. Um, you know, it, it, it changes the entire interface of visibility and legitimacy for, for, for candidates like myself who are challenging in the primary. And I had re I had gotten you know in touch with the head of policy at Twitter myself. I had responded in an intercept piece that Ada Chavez wrote that I was very appreciative of, and I've been pushing on that front because you want every opportunity to level the playing field, and it looks like now we're going to get that. Um, you know the timing is uh, the timing is going to be alongside the dates of the primaries mm -hmm. on how quickly they're able to do that. But social media, when used correctly, Twitter specifically here, helps helps with visibility, helps with legitimacy. Um, and then, you know, part of what I really enjoy about um, Facebook is being able to reach a local audience that isn't necessarily as engaged in Twitter because it's a different demographics that are that are using Facebook and, and Instagram as well. Um, you know, people, for whatever reason, I'm not used to sharing that much, but people like to like to see you that you're you know you know a normal person dorky person in <laughs> yeah. my case and you know maybe i'm what i do with my daughter and pick her up from school or mm. maybe this conversation there will mm. be something online and people want to see that because they want to have a sense of who you are um that matters a great deal if you know people's ability to trust you um so the social media has been extremely helpful i think it's um you know a, a natural fit for someone a millennial an older millennial of my generation mm -hmm. who um grew up with facebook my my year was the year um facebook came online actually when i was at wellesley and i guess that group of young men were at harvard including mark zuckerberg so i i, I grew up with an awareness of these things they've obviously changed a tremendous amount in terms of how we use them but um i'm i feel they've been a real benefit um to our ability to convey messaging online. Um, now, again, like the mental health piece and how much time I'm spending all these things, that's a constant battle because some of the, you know, Twitter can be um, a pandas, Pandora's box on mm -hmm. some some issues you people disagree on. But, but not a lot of people talk about mental health though. That, that's great that people yeah. are able to read more about that. Oh yeah, no, I, it's been amazing. I'm actually doing a podcast early next week oh. um, because to go to, to connect the points back, mm -hmm. thank you. Um, <laughs> the BuzzFeed op-ed I did talking about the importance of um, highlighting and emphasizing mental health care when mm -hmm. we talk about Medicare for all mm -hmm. um, and something that is unique um, in terms of how much I'm talking about that as an important point. I was able to connect with mental health advocates all over the country simply because Twitter, simply because I got to um, expand upon that messaging. And now every time there's something really relevant, I've also produced, I produced a short direct camera video um, most recently with a health policy, a mental health policy plan I put forth. I can, you know, re-engage that every time something connected to the issues we care about with mental illness come up. and. Um, I'm able to communicate to a broader and broader audience. And um, none of that would really be possible in the same way but for Twitter. So I'm very appreciative of that. It also, I am finding increasingly, maybe it's just because I hadn't been on Twitter before two years ago um, at all, which is hard to believe now. Um, <laughs> um, you know, people are finding ways to, um, you know, be, be casual and maintain friendships and to sift through um, some of the, you know, the, the unfair meanness and sort of fight back against some of the, um, what I would say are, uh, you know, the less, trolls? yeah, the trolls, yeah. I, the trolls. I think there's a broader awareness of that now. And I think we're finding, I wouldn't say it's like an acceptable use policy, but I think, 
um, you know, rules of the road are getting more laid out in terms of how people interact with one another. Um, and that's good for timing because I think, you know, women have largely been, um, th you know, the, the um, focus, the focal point for a, a lot of the Twitter online trolling and, and the like. So I think a lot of that's changing. Um, I found it very useful to communicate messages around mental illness, mental health, around um, inequality, whether we're talking about housing, we're talking about healthcare, education, um, around climate change. And you find people that you can work together with. I've, you know, collaborated on a few pieces with journalists, and I have a few plans to do that purely because I met them on Twitter, okay. which is a lot of fun for me. Um, and in a world where we don't, um, you know, where we aren't, all, we're overloaded with things in our time, to be able to forge a friendship with someone that's meaningful and find ways to collaborate on something that's meaningful is a really wonderful thing. So, um, you know, I'm not saying that I see Twitter only as this perfect place to communicate, but I found it very useful. And I think it's really important to challenge our campaigns. Well, especially because 10, 20 years ago, it's because Obama was the first one, to, the first major politician to, to mold social media in, yeah. that, in that essence. But before then, because if this race took place 10, 20 years ago, it would be probably not have a le that large a chance if yeah because it's thanks to facebook thanks to twitter you're yeah. able to broaden that message out for people to actually look at so yes especially with the mental health care or the mental health piece and especially with talking to other journalists to get that message spread out more absolutely i mean um having validators of something you're talking about people who are interested in continuing to hear from you is really very important mm -hmm. and um there's no incentive for a local, you know, local community leaders or local, you know, um, writers to anger their local congressmen by covering me. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had a few cases where people have me on their podcasts or a local journalist writes about me and they hear from the congressman or his office that they're very angry that he's that they've that, that the journalist has done this um, and communicated with me and elevated me. If you're having conversations with national journalists, they don't have that same ability to mm. threaten your, you know, the, the, the incumbents don't have the same capacity to threaten, to sort of um, make it uncomfortable for journalists to write about you. So in many ways, being able to communicate a message to broader audiences helps you communicate again more locally, which mm. is an odd sort of way to see these things, but it, it's, it's certainly been true for everything I've been doing. Well, especially it gives the constituents there, like if in that particular district, you can get those kind of, either if it's positive or negative, but they'll yeah. get you a better understanding of those people you're representing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the other, because I did want to go back because you stole my point. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, so it was a little while ago. It was, I've been watching on and off, but on Twitter, you've been, you and along with other people who are also running for Congress, mm -hmm. you want to have that, that blue check. Because yes. it's a very important, it's it, it allows you to extend yourself as that challenger because yes. you're almost seen as unofficial in that way. Oh yeah. So yeah, it's ad hoc. Yeah. Well, the thing, yeah, it's the same thing. So it's it's basically people without a blue check, you're essentially seen as, like I said, unofficial. But the whole thing is, is that Twitter has said before, the reason why we don't give you the blue check is because you know it could hinder other people. Like it could yeah. not your campaign will get less um like less coverage but it's like that doesn't make any sense no but it's great that you were able to help get that that achieved. i was pretty annoying behind the scenes and, <laughs> and online you know and i think i think when twitter uh, you know all of these things have a domino effect nothing mm. is, nothing no decisions in in life or in politics or strategy are generally made in isolation right mm. we're all impacted by what's going on um the failure, in my view, failure, this is um, my view, but um, the failure of Facebook to monitor and provide some, um, you know, sifting through untruths and lies and po political advertising that we saw really did influence the, the 2016 election and, and that they've more recently said that they're not going to weigh in on mm -hmm. any ads and if, even if they're blatant lies, uh, I think forced these conversations with the broader tech community and certainly twitter shortly thereafter mm -hmm. decided that and made the announcement that they were going to stop political advertising right yeah. on twitter well p 
political advertising for you know that that makes a lot of sense mm. um, with the broader conversations we've been hearing about in terms of misleading or lies in politics. But advertising was a way for you know with relatively yeah. low cost yeah. for challengers to get their name out there. Yeah. So when that happened, I think there was also a lot of pressure to say, okay, you're focused on advertising and you're or you're focused on politics and social media. Why don't you level the playing field? So it, I think it became we were chipping away mm. at their ability to ignore it for for a long time. Um, and uh, you know, they get to look like um, they've made a good choice as opposed to some of the choices that, for instance, Facebook has made. Mm. Um, and uh, I think it's going to be critically important mm. for for um, technology companies, social media um, apps, you know, whatever we're talking about to show that they're being responsive to consumers, um, particularly in the next few years, as there will be conver conversations around privacy, around antitrust, all sorts of questions at, at, a, at a congressional level yeah. um, that that they're that they're making good choices now, I think, is a really important thing. So the other thing, which I got to go away from the positive aspects of it. Yeah. So with Twitter and Facebook and all these different platforms with it, do you see any you mentioned a little bit of it, but do you have any specific negative connotations about this that kind of like hindered your campaign or hindered like what yeah. you, you view it as? Yeah, I mean, you know, I so it's no secret that I speak um, fairly in fairly um, basic terms about my distaste for the president, for instance. Mm -hmm. I've done a few direct to camera videos um, challenging the president. I've done a few direct to camera videos challenging sort of um, the makeup of our government, which is largely um, older white men. Mm -hmm. um, and I have done a direct to camera even challenging sort of the status quo within my own party. Um, you know, the most negative, in addition to getting a lot of positive feedback um, and traction on these messages, um, I've had like the MAGA people attack mm. me. Um, but, you know, things like that that are so, um, you know, in opposition to how I see the world and seem to be just really trolling don't bother me so much. Maybe mm. the first time, you know, I was yeah. sort of surprised by some of the wording and the attacks. but. You get used to that. Um, Which you ha shouldn't have to. That's, yeah. that's the thing of how that works. Yes, yes. You do get used to it. Um, at least I have. Mm. Um, and, you know, some of the things that you remember, the things that I think are more pervasive and problematic are, you know, um, of a more sexist sort of misogynist, mm. you know, attack in nature. Or, like, I did one video, and it was actually, I don't even remember what I was talking about in this video, but someone said, oh, you know, look at her droopy eyes. She needs to be medicated more. And just, like, I'm like, where do I start? Do I respond to this because it's an online troll? Do I say yeah. being medicated, quote, unquote, mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with that, even if someone was medicated? Mm -hmm. And inferring that someone has a mental illness because of how they look or, mm -hmm. you know, all these, like, you're like, do I step into this quicksand of a conversation or do I just ignore it? So... Um, those kinds of things are like sort of ridiculous and hurtful if you let them be. The longer and the more you experience it, the easier it is to sort of ignore. Mm -hmm. um, the question is, when do you choose not to ignore it to make a point that it's unacceptable? Um, and uh, that I'm still learning, but I think it gets easier as time goes on. Um, it's also easier, you know, if my daughter, and the reason why I love that I'm running now as well is, um, it's easier to, to shelter her from this experience when she's five. Hmm. If she was 15, she would be super aware of everything that people were saying about me hmm. and the like. And um, it's really important to me that while I'm, you know, doing following my passion, which is, you know, government and trying to change things for people, that I'm not hurting, you know, hurting my loved ones. Hmm. And... Um, I can shelter her from that experience right now. And I assume as we go on in the years, I'll be already better equipped to deal with it because I'll have learned a lot um, and I can find ways to shelter her. But I am so glad that I'm not a mom of a 15 year old going through this right now. Cause can you imagine that, you know, it would be different than right now. She's just excited that she has a whole team of people at my house, you know, to, to help, to help us. And it feels like it's, they're there for her. Um, and, you know, I, I don't say that to make it sort of difficult for moms I think it's wonderful all moms should run for office if they feel compelled and they feel like they're passionate about things just putting my two cents in it's actually been nice to do it when she's younger you know of course my husband is an equal partner we have um, people to, you know we're able to have help to make it all work time-wise but 
um, to do it at a young age where she's not really aware of the kinds of things people say and respond to me on online is better for 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 both of us because I can shield her from it. And the thing that I couldn't stand is if if she were hurt by this experience. So that does bring to another point. So you ever heard of the phrase echo chambers? Yeah. yeah. So um, so with echo chambers, it's in Twitter and Facebook. It's that for anyone who doesn't know, it's basically echo chambers. It's in social media. It's a space where you are in your own ideal space. So if I'm yeah. a Democrat, then I'll have myself surrounded by other people like-minded with me. Yeah. So there are arguments for and against them. I've done research in the last year, and people that look, they, there are people for and against them sure. saying that, there's um like for your example are you more of a person that says echo chambers aren't as bad as they as they are i think it depends you know i think it it sort of depends the usage the usage because having people reinforce a message for instance around mental illness Mm -hmm. that and normalizing it and destigmatizing it and Having people, if I say that I had postpartum depression, having people um, respond to that with their stories of dealing with any form of mental illness, that's probably an echo chamber of people's willingness to share, but Mm. that's a really powerful one that people leave hopefully better off because they feel like they're not alone, right? Um, So that's a positive example. Um, Now, uh, I think echo chambers also lead to a lot of surprise at the outcome of the 2016 election. You know, I was at Wellesley College where um, Hillary went, I went to Wellesley, and we were all there on the evening of the election um, with uh, shattered glass cupcakes and mallets and all this stuff, like waiting, I know, right, (laughs) Um, waiting for the first woman president that we were all excited because she was an alum. And you know, that was a really, that would have been a really wonderful thing yeah. if she had won. Um, but, you know, I was, I probably shouldn't have been nearly as surprised um, mm-hmm. because when I traveled around the state for my job, um, I saw a lot of Trump signs everywhere mm-hmm. outside of the city. I mean, the city itself is, if you want to talk about it, its own version of an echo chamber because yeah. we will elect in this city um, a Democrat, you mm-hmm. know, in the primary process and the general election. Um, and that's pretty much a given, but pretty much every county upstate, aside from the urban ones, um, you're from upstate. Yeah. Um, goes you know, red. Goes red. Very red. Right. So um, there are all con- the, the concept of echo chambers is not new, I guess, is my point. Mm-hmm. And in and of itself, it's not um, a bad thing on the face value. It's it's, um, you know, putting it within the broader context. Mm-hmm. Um, even the example where I post something like very negative about the president um and i see the, a barrage of messages from people i like to follow some of the comments and see where they go and to see how many people are retweeting messages that i disagree with because mm-hmm. i sort of want to know um you know what what what's out there um, um i think the biggest echo chambers are geographic they 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 far um they they were there long before social media echo chambers mm-hmm. well especially because Back when the election was going on, back in 2016, I was in high school at the time. Yeah. So, so County is a very, I was one of the very few people who were Democrat. Yeah. Was, yeah, I, so yeah well, I wasn't old enough to vote yet, but yeah. like I was still trying to canvas out support, try to get people. But when it was more of a, because on social media, especially those kind of people, there was a lot of people with Trump flags around. Yeah. There was the, I don't want to remember the, the day after, but the day after there was one of the kids in high school ran around the cafeteria with a Trump flag. Oh, yeah, yeah, So yeah. it's stuff like that is that, there's a lot of people that have support because they're in their own area. So there's New York that's very democratic. So it's very hard to um, get out of that bubble. Yes. And then there's places like upstate New York that's very in their own bubble. So especially on, on Twitter and Facebook. Well, and let me give you another another kind of example that's not geographic um, in nature at all. Like, I'll talk to some people who say, well, you know, I don't really, I don't really see the draw of Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, mm. and I'll have to politely sort of say, you know, you maybe in your case things are going well, but mm. there are a lot of people who feel very personally the impact of an economy that isn't working for a lot of people. Which and is the perfect example to get. <laughs> yeah, and there's there are a lot of people in this district mm-hmm. that I live in that is perceived as a quote-unquote wealthy district. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is not. It's one of extremes. Mm-hmm. And 
it's really easy to find echo chambers in every facet of your life. They're mm -hmm. not just geographic. I mean, in some cases, on some level, that is geographic, ultimately, because of how urban planning works out mm -hmm. and the cost of living. But um, echo chambers can, can be very damaging. Mm -hmm. They can be affirming. But um, you never want to assume that the, the, the space you sit in is the only reality that exists. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the challenge. And so, you know, if you were to assume that um, you know everyone thinks Joe Biden is the best candidate um, and that he's got the right sort of sensibility of how to respond to the problems, no Norman and judgment of that, but mm -hmm. there are a lot of people who feel differently um, and have a different seat within the Democratic Party. And we're talking about the same party, a, a broad party, um, and trying to sort of communicate to people the, the range of what I'm hearing mm -hmm. is um, a challenge, but it's also, you know, that's the point of going into government that you that you sort of synthesize all of this and say, well, how do I, how do I, how do I, sh how do I talk to someone whose life in, you know, for the most part seems to be going well about how poorly things are going for someone right next door mm -hmm. and, and how important it is to deal with the housing crisis in New York City, how important it is to deal with the healthcare system um, you know, how do I how do I communicate to someone who um, has not experienced the exchanges or the Affordable Care Act or the implementation of that? That for many, there's it's still very unaffordable. Right, mm -hmm. the deductible is too high or the monthly is too high. Um, that is the whole process of governing. So echo chambers can be, um, or sort of community-based sharing can be um, very powerful and very positive, but they can also be detrimental if you think that that's the only world that exists. And going alongside that with, like, especially with your campaign having to deal with this, but, and you did bring up the point with having those different, the candidates, how you view it, do you see polarization as a big, like, facet right in the last year or two? Yeah, I think, um, I think politics always tends to, to have polars. Um, I think... Just going back, I don't know what made me think of this, but conflict resolution, you know, oh, and yeah. big companies, they talk about two ladders um, that like may have been, you know, facing each other fairly close at the mm -hmm. bottom of the steps. And then as time goes on, they get further and further apart. Um, I do think that um, the Republican Party, in an effort to support their president, has really um, has really gone to an extreme mm -hmm. um, and um, it's hard to figure out how that will come back together. Um, I do have a lot of faith in the people in this country, um, the everyday people, um, but there is a sense that there's some extreme polarization, um, particularly in my view on the right. Hmm. Um, I don't subscribe to the idea that the quote unquote left has become more polar. Um, I, I think maybe for the first time, hmm serious leaders that are um, perceived as central parts of the party are talking about the problems of the majority of people um, rather than, um, you know, the towing the party line that comes up from sort of the hierarchy. I think well, that's the difference. It's not like polarization itself is, in theory, not great because yeah. yeah. it can be seen as both good and bad like but a lot of people see it like well for the left it's polarization means that well now everybody's going to be antifa or something yeah which is always an yeah. idiotic yeah. metaphor that people use um but like you said republican party and i'm not republican and you're not republican but in that aspect people see some people on the republican party see well no we're not getting more polarized we're just getting more like hard in our conservative values yeah so I, I think that's how they kind of view the left. They view the left as that socialist, radical place, yeah. which is annoying because I've been reading, I've been like nonstop reading British politics since last night. Yeah. Um, and now people in the, especially in the establishment party on Twitter and yeah. Democrat party, they've been seeing this as this means that we are going too far. Yeah, I think that's ridiculous. In America, because they're saying like, well, now that yeah. we saw the Corbyn loss, that means that, yeah, we're not, we can't I mean, have a Bernie. I they have something called Bernie. Brexit right in the middle of all this yeah. that they're dealing with, which is an entirely different reality. Um, I don't profess to be an expert on British politics. Um, what I do know is that, you know, in spite of, you know, the Labour Party and Corbyn taking a beating, mm. um, they did get over 10 million votes 
compared to 13 million. So it's not mm -hmm. as if no one voted for yeah. the party. It's probably got a lot to do with geographic distribution in addition to a lot of other things. Um, I'm not a Corbin expert or a particular um, fan, um, but I think that this is that's a con convenient tool for yeah. established, you know, for more um, for Democratic leaders who are not interested in what Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders have to offer. Um, I don't think that um, I don't think it's an instructive example at all. Um, you know, we we <laughs> at some point we fought a war um, to become an independent country mm. from the exact place that they're using as an example. And of course, we're all dealing with um, globally the realities of, you know, um, uh, well, an increasingly connected world, scarcity of resources, fear about the scarcity of resources and longevity. Um, and we're coming up with some scary solutions, some people are, to deal with them, which is these strong men. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I would not draw examples beyond general trends um, because there are a lot of differences um, and there's a lot of differences in, in what it means to be quote unquote progressive in the UK versus what it means to be progressive in America um, historically and now. Um, you know, I think tools are just that. They're things people use. doesn't mean I'm, they're true. Because I'm not the biggest expert on British pol uh, politics, too. In this thing, but in this case, they're trying to find a scapegoat. But in that way, it's kind of like, well, see, that proved my point. Because yeah. Bloomberg went on Twitter yesterday or this morning, and he was like, see, this is proof that we need a more centrist candidate. Right. Well, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you could also say the fact that um, if we count Howard Schultz, um, mm. We had three billionaires running for president on the Democratic side. We have arguably a billionaire in the presidency. Mm -hmm. That's four people, right, um, who've taken a pass at or have been in, in the presidency um, in this election cycle. And there's something like 600 billionaires in the United States. That's mm -hmm. a fairly high percentage of people who are um, having a significant impact by running for president or considering the office. Um, if that doesn't say that, um, you know, extreme wealth is running the decision-making in our country, um, I don't know what does. I think those kinds of examples are more instructive than to um, make us the same as a parliamentarian system, mm -hmm. parliamentary system, um, and to say that our politicians are the same. I've actually, frankly, never heard, I never hear people talk about connecting British politics to American ones, save this example. Um, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a really instructive one personally. So with all the talk about digital media and everything, I know that asked a very important question. Is your campaign making a TikTok? Worth <laughs> Yes, we've got to do it. I, you know, I am a little concerned because I, you know, I've seen a few of those examples mm. where um, the Chinese government has restricted some of the, the video. I know that they put one back up that was talking about the Uyghurs and the treatment mm -hmm. in, in, um, in the far western part of China. But, um, but yeah, probably. Well, <laughs> you know, I'm, I would not call myself an early adapter. If I got on Twitter two years ago, um, but everyone on my team is at least, you know, eight years younger than I, except, you know, a few. So we'll probably do it. Yeah, we'll get there. If you think we should get there, we'll get there. But um, anyway, but this was a very informative interview. Yes, thank and you. I think that we learned a lot, but thank you for tuning in. Thank you so much.